to Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Good to be back after a couple of weeks' absence, uh, still dealing with the most severe case of laryngitis I've ever had. I'm coming on four weeks of uh, not being up to snuff with my voice here, although I can actually make sounds again, which is <laughs> comforting that I'm on the road to recovery here. Uh, but a lot has happened in this last couple of weeks. And uh, imagine being somebody like me and not being able to talk when the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. So hallelujah and thanks be to God. Allow me to add my voice to those thanking our good Lord for this turn of events. And I'm, I'm certain that you've heard plenty from other commentators in the last couple of weeks, pro con about uh, what it might mean and, and uh, the often ugly reactions to uh, this great blessing, but I'm not going to dwell on Roe v. Wade or, or this you know, important victory in the ongoing battle for the cause of life. But uh, as I said, not being able to talk for the last couple of weeks, I did a lot of reading. And in that reading, and this is anecdotal, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I only saw one, uno, one single uh, article that was actually devoted, and this is in Catholic media I'm talking about, one article in Catholic media dedicated to giving due thanks to Donald Trump. Because whatever you think of President Trump, it is absolutely certain that without his appointment of Justices Gorsuch, uh, Gorsuch however you say his name, and Comey Barrett, Roe versus Wade would not have been overturned. Supreme Court uh, appointments by Republican presidents from Nixon to Bush have in many cases uh, proven, shall we say, disappointing. And the reason that those Republican presidents, or the reason why, is that those Republican presidents sought to nominate conservatives, quote unquote, to the court. And that, of course, is the problem. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said the whole modern world has divided itself into conservatives and progressives. And he said the business of progressives is to go on making mistakes, and the business of conservatives is to prevent mistakes from being corrected. That is why I don't refer to myself as a conservative. I am a traditionalist. And, um, you know, in, in the United States, politically speaking, um, the closest thing you can get to a traditionalist is a constitutionalist. And here's the point. Republican presidents appointing uh, disappointing conservative judges, not so Mr. Trump. His nominations were not dependent on party affiliation or, or sex or color, uh, like some recent presidents or sitting presidents. Rather, his stated criteria for nominating people to the Supreme Court was that they be strict constitutionalists. Like I say, the closest thing we have politically to a traditionalist or, or what you might call a restorationist. You remember his campaign slogan? Uh, slogan. That's, a, that's a combination of slogan and logo, a slogan. <laughs> his campaign slogan was make America great again. And that presupposes that America was great in the first place, that there was something to restore, something worthwhile to recapture. And, of course, that's a claim that's absolutely denied by the progressives, who at the same time were busily tearing down statues uh, of the founding fathers and renaming streets and so forth, uh, trying to cancel out 
those who framed our constitution and founded our country. But I'm happy to say that narrative is starting to wear thin. Uh, but uh, and so much for the temporal sphere and the spiritual sphere in these past leaks, weeks, man, not talking for a long time makes it seem as though you have a rented tongue. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I haven't said this many words all at once in some time, so please forgive me. <clears throat> in the spiritual sphere these past weeks, Pope Francis has doubled or, or tripled or quadrupled or quintupled down in his war against traditionalists with his remarks about those he now terms restorers. And we're going to talk about that later in the program. But first, uh, as always, going to begin with a gospel from uh, last Sunday's Mass, uh, the, the Mass that began our week and uh, going now to the ordinary form readings. This uh, from Year C in the 13th Sunday of Ordinary Time from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. And I'm reading from the New Catholic Bible translation. <clears throat> also, from time to time, those of you watching on Rumble will see it. Those of you listening on audio will only hear slight pauses. That will be me taking the occasional sip of rock and rye. Essentially an old-fashioned in a bottle, rock and rye is, is the one thing that I, as, as a professional singer for many years, uh, found was able to keep my voice going under impossible conditions. Ah, so there it is. Uh, Luke 9, 51 through 62. As the time drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus resolutely set his sights on Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. They entered a Samaritan village to make arrangements for his arrival, but the people there would not receive him because his destination was Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they journeyed forth to another village. As they traveled along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. And the man replied, Lord, allow me to go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. You are to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another man said, I will follow you, Lord, but allow me first to say farewell to my family at home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, this episode is a crossroads in the life of Jesus. He begins to go to Jerusalem where his mystery will be accomplished. And although Jesus knew that he would face persecution and even death in Jerusalem, he was determined to go there. And, and that kind of resolve should characterize our life too. When God gives us a course of action, we should move steadily toward our destination, no matter what the potential hazards uh, are awaiting us there. You know, if you put your hand to the plow, you keep plowing, you don't look back. Now, the next thing it says is that a Samaritan village wouldn't welcome them on their way to Jerusalem. So a little background. 
after Assyria had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and, and, and resettled it with its own people, they intermarried um, and mixed, the mixed race that developed uh, became known as the Samaritans. And the Jews hated the Samaritans for their infidelity, and the Samaritans in turn hated the Jews. And so many tensions arose between these two peoples that Jewish travelers between Galilee and southern Judea would often walk around Sumerian territory rather than through it, you know, even though that lengthened their journey considerably. Jesus, of course, has no such prejudices. So he sent messengers ahead to get things ready for him in the Samaritan village. But the village refused to welcome these Jewish pilgrims because they were on their way to the temple in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans didn't recognize the temple as uh, the legitimate place of worship. Now, earlier in the same chapter, in, in Luke 9, verse 5, Jesus told the disciples, As for those who do not welcome you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet in testimony against them. Now, when James and John were rejected by the Samaritan village, they didn't want to stop at shaking dust off their feet. They wanted to retaliate. They wanted to call a fire down from heaven on the people, the way Elijah did on the servants of Baal back in 2 Kings. But Jesus wasn't having it. Now, the modern translations say simply that Jesus rebuked the disciples. In the Latin Vulgate and the Douay Reims, it adds, And he said, You do not know of what spirit you are. And the point for us, in some ancient manuscripts even say, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. And the point for us is this, when others reject us or scorn us, we too may feel like retaliating. But that's the tactic of the devil and his followers. And I'll give you as an example, the vandalism and the arson that's been committed against Catholic churches and crisis pregnancy centers uh, over this Supreme Court decision. Their behavior tells you of what spirit they are and whom they serve. As Catholic Christians, we have to remember that judgment belongs to God. And furthermore, we shouldn't expect him to use his power to carry out our personal vendettas. Not my will, but thine be done. And that's why we pray for the conversion of of pro-choicers and others, and not for their destruction. Because that shows of what spirit we are and whom we serve. Now, the next part of the uh, gospel talks about the cost of following our Lord. Uh, Jesus demands an unconditional commitment, especially from those who hesitate. The preaching of the kingdom is, is the primary urgency. And on, the, on its account, we are to renounce everything, free ourselves from even the closest of human attachments. Lord, allow me to go first and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead. And some have wondered if the father was already dead or close to death. And, and, but it seems likely if that were the case, the son would have been fulfilling his burial duties. So what does he mean when he says, let the dead bury their own dead? Well, we'll talk about that and more when we come back talking about uh, restorers in the church. Good thing, bad thing, or the only thing that's going to save us. <laughs> I'll let you decide when we come back with more No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio after these messages.
welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic here on, I almost forgot what my show was, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You see what happens when you're gone for a couple of weeks. Uh, we're talking about the reading for the 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time, and the man who was called by Jesus but said, Lord, allow me to go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. And as I mentioned before the break, some have wondered if the father was already dead or perhaps he was terminally ill, you know, close to death. And because it seems likely that if the father were dead, the son would have already been fulfilling the burial duties. But I don't think that Jesus expects people to forsake their responsibility to their family. Um, however, um, I, I do know that he often gives commands to people in light of their real motives. In other words, to show them their real motives. You remember the rich young man, for instance, tells him, keep the commandments. He says, oh, I've kept the commandments from my youth. He says, okay, you're almost perfect then. Just sell everything and follow me. And what did it say? He went away sad because of his many possessions. It was Jesus. You know, I, he wasn't condemning riches. He was showing this guy what was really the most important to him in his life. And so I suspect that the man in our reading was probably afraid of his father's disapproval. And he wants to wait for his father to die before he declares himself a follower of Jesus. In any case, Jesus was saying that true discipleship requires immediate action. And, and this man wanted to delay following Christ and, and was likely just using his father as an excuse. So the point is this, there's a cost to following Jesus. And each one of us must be ready to serve even if, or perhaps especially if, it requires sacrifice. Because that's what Jesus is asking of us, total dedication. He wants to be Lord. He doesn't want your half-hearted commitment. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. We can't pick and choose amongst Jesus' teachings and only follow the ones we're comfortable with. We have to accept judgment as well as mercy. As there's an old song, you have, to, you have to accept the cross along with the crown. You have to count the cost and be willing to abandon worldly things, um, really all the worldly things that have given us security. And so, and, I, and it's, this has been especially poignant to me, considering some events that are happening in my own life right now. But that's what it means to be a saint, to keep your eyes on Jesus and to refuse to allow anything else to distract you from his way, which is the truth and the life. And that is no nonsense. All right. Um, I mentioned before the break, we're going to talk about the Pope's recent remarks regarding what he terms restorers in the church and essentially how we're ruining everything. And, uh, and, and we're going to talk about restoration more generally because I believe that the restoration of the church is precisely the will of God. And I'll tell you why. Um, but I have long maintained that whether or not um, you go to the traditional mass, that that whether or not you're a traditional Catholic doesn't depend on whether you celebrate the ordinary form or, or assist at the extraordinary form. My definition of a traditional Catholic is one who can say the act of faith and really mean it. Oh my God, I firmly believe all the truths that the Catholic Church believes and teaches because thou hast revealed them who canst neither deceive nor be deceived. You know, if you agree with that statement, congratulations, you're a traditional Catholic. 
you know, whatever mass you might happen to go to. And apparently Pope Francis feels the same. <laughs> and what do I mean by that? Uh, I, I recently read a, a couple of articles by Larry Chapp, that, uh, the first of which appeared on the 21st on uh, Catholic World Report website. And in that first article, he says that uh, many formerly conservative Catholics have been red-pilled by the current papacy, which has sadly led to extreme and wrong positions about Vatican II and the church at large. So what he's basically saying is that there were a lot of people who, you know, the, the people who for many years under JP two and Benedict XVI, uh, the kind of people that we would call solid Orthodox conservative Catholics, um, are reevaluating their opinions about the second Vatican council because precisely because of the actions of the current occupant of the chair of Peter. And uh, he says, quote, Holy, the Holy Father asserted that the Second Vatican Council has been gagged by restorationists. And Pope Francis specifically mentioned the United States as home to many such restorationists. This interview was with editors of European Jesuit journals of culture. So it was no mere off-the-cuff collection of remarks. It was a Jesuit pope speaking to fellow Jesuits in a scheduled event about one of the burning issues of the day, namely the ongoing retrieval and application of Vatican II. Unquote. So who is the Holy Father talking about? What does he mean when he refers to restorers, especially in the United States? Well, you know, if, if he were talking about a set of acantists, let's say, I mean, people who who openly say that they think that Vatican II was an heretical council and therefore we haven't had a, a valid pope since Pius Twelfth, because everybody from Francis down to John Twenty-Third are themselves heretics and Vatican Council is, is a heretic council and, and needs to be abandoned, then I would agree with him. But that's, that is a, a tiny fraction of the tiny fraction of Catholics that are labeled traditionalists. You know, and the traditionalists themselves, like I say, they're only a tiny fraction of this much larger Catholic population. And I suspect that uh, that the Pope has more in mind than than the lunatic fringe of radical traditionalism, which does not represent very many people. And hence this new term restorers. See, I would submit to you that these restorers that he's referring to are those who follow Pope Benedict XVI's teaching regarding the hermeneutic of continuity versus the hermeneutic of rupture. That Vatican II needs to be interpreted in light of the 2,000 years of Catholic tradition that preceded it, rather than being reinterpreted, you know, reinterpreting 2,000 years of tradition in light of Vatican II. And the distinction should be obvious. Unfortunately, when what, what Pope Francis means by gagging the council isn't necessarily gagging the council itself, the actual documents but gagging the fruits uh, uh, of the hermeneutic of rupture of the so-called, not the letter of Vatican II, but the so-called spirit of Vatican II. And this argument is given by progressives of all stripes at all times. We can't afford to lose the progress we've made. And you have to admit, things have changed in the church since Vatican II. I imagine if Rip Van Winkle fell asleep in 1962 and woke up today, he probably wouldn't recognize what's going on in a typical Catholic church as Catholic. And it wasn't that, you know, we're only talking 60 years. But, uh, you know, things have changed. But like C.S. Lewis pointed out, 
just change is not necessarily real progress. He says authentic progress, authentic growth is the synthesis, synthesis, say that three times fast. Authentic growth is the synthesis of change and continuity. Where there is no continuity, there is no growth. And this should be obvious. But as George Orwell said, sometimes the first duty of intelligent men is the restatement of the obvious. And that, by the way, was John XXIII's stated purpose for calling the Second Vatican Council in the first place. Here's what he said in his opening address. He says, it is but natural that in opening this universal council, we should like to look to the past and listen to its voices, who, whose echo we like to hear in the memories and the merits of the more recent and ancient pontiffs, our predecessors. These are solemn and venerable voices throughout East and West, from the fourth century to the Middle Ages, and from there to modern times, which have handed down their witness to those councils. They are voices which proclaim in perennial fervor the triumph of that divine and human institution, the Church of Christ, which from Jesus takes its name, its grace, and its meaning. All right, so it doesn't sound to me like he's saying the past is a do-over. He continues, the greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously without any attenuation or distortion, which throughout 20 centuries has become the common patrimony of men. It is not, or it is a patrimony not well received by all, but always a rich treasure available to men of goodwill. But from the renewed, serene, and tranquil adherence to all the teaching of the church in its entirety and preciseness, as it still shines forth in the acts of the Council of Trent and the First Vatican Council, the Christian, Catholic, and apostolic spirit of the whole world expects a step forward toward a doctrinal penetration and a formation of consciousness in faithful and perfect continuity to the authentic doctrine. Okay, in perfect continuity with the authentic doctrine, which should be expounded through message, methods of research and forms of modern thought. The substance, I'm quoting, the substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, the way in which it is presented is another. And this latter must be taken into great consideration with patience if necessary, everything being measured in the forms and proportions of a magisterium, which is predominantly pastoral in character. He's not saying, hey, we've got a bunch of new doctrines. We've got a bunch of new dogmas. Everything has changed. Entirely, exactly the opposite. He proposed to take the unchanging and immutable, or which is to say unchangeable, teachings of the church and present them in a way that would make them more intelligible to the modern world, which, as he says, you know, hasn't accepted the Christian patrimony. Again, as Orwell stated so well, sometimes it's the duty of intelligent men, or the first duty of intelligent men, is the restatement of the obvious. But since the Council, there has been a rupture with our doctrinal patrimony. 
And it's now the duty of men of goodwill to restore what John the 23rd called, and I quote, the teaching of the church in its entirety and preciseness as it still shines forth in the acts of the Council of Trent. New methods of presentation notwithstanding. But fast forward to Pope Francis. What about the people he calls restorers? Larry Chapp asks, did Pope Francis in his comments about restorationists in the American church have in view more than that very small but vocal minority of rad trads, quote unquote? Oh, my goodness. Hey, Richie, I think there must be an open mic in the studio someplace because it sounds like somebody just kicked something down. That uh, the mic in studio, too, isn't open. And uh, on that weird note, we'll uh, take a break and come back and talk about who it was precisely that Pope Francis was talking about when he said that the American church is full of restorers. That and more when uh, No Nonsense Catholic returns here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio right after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Good to have you along with us. Talking about some remarks that Pope Francis made regarding uh, what he calls restorers, particularly restorers or restorationists in the American church. And did he have in mind more than uh, traditionalist Catholics or, or the small and vocal minority of what they call radical traditions, rad trads? Chap asks, one wonders if he did not also have in mind, even if in a vague and generalized manner, the large swaths of American Catholics who are simply garden variety conservatives. Now, he goes on to present his evidence for thinking that the answer is yes, that that what started out as a, a papal caricature of traditional Catholics is now a, a much broader brush that's painting conservative Catholics in general. You know, um, like the commentators that you would see on EWTN, for example. Or even bishops like Cordelione Gomez Baron or the now retired Bishop Chaput. And I think, you know, the obvious reason that he brings that up is, is the fact that they were all passed over to be made members of the College of Cardinals for their very liberal and less distinguished counterparts. Now, if Chap is wrong and he's really only just talking about tradies or, or radical traditionalists. Why is the Pope so concerned about this tiny number of Catholics? I mean, all people that go to the traditional mass are not what you would call traditionalists. They're not all people that are against Vatican II or, or you know, think that we ha don't have a valid Pope or any of that crazy stuff. That's, that's relegated to a tiny minority of a tiny minority. Why be so worried about it? Well, I can guess. John Paul II gave an indult in 1988, the Ecclesia Dei indult, and founded the Fraternity of St. Peter so that people who were attached to the Old Mass would have someplace to go and have it celebrated. And in the course of time, there was something like 200 parishes in the United States that had a traditional Mass. Today, there are 1,700. Every 
diocese in the country uh, has a traditional mass. Now, that doesn't mean that they all have an FSSP parish with a daily traditional mass. Some places, I mean, we're blessed to have the traditional mass on Sundays and Holy Days at my parish. But some places only have the mass, you know, a couple of times a month or only once a month. Or you have a situation like in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles where they have it three times a month, but it's in a different church every time. So you have a situation where, where the people in, the, in one of the largest dioceses in the world have to travel from, you know, one corner of the diocese to another on three consecutive Sundays. And then once one Sunday a month, there, there's no traditional mass at all. Okay, This doesn't seem like it's such a danger, except for one thing. In 2007, when Benedict XVI put out Samorum Pontificum, there were 200 parishes with the traditional Latin Mass. Now there's 1,700. The Mass uh, at my parish, the traditional Mass, where I could count on sitting in the same pew every week because it was never full, now has, gen I mean, on any given Sunday, more than 100 people standing around outside listening to the Mass over speakers because the church is completely full. And that's the crux. Because even if traditionalists are a small part of the church, it's the only, I'm going to underline that, the only section of the church, the only segment that's growing. In fact, every other part of the church is not only not growing, it's shrinking. Depending upon the country that you that you're talking about in the former Christendom, you know, here in the United States, what what is what do we have? It's over seventy percent of Catholics don't ever go to mass at all. In some European countries, uh, you know, that have a beautiful church every couple of blocks, it's you know less than ten percent. In the single digits of the percentage of Catholics that actually go to mass, and he's worried about. This one little part of the church that's actually growing. Why? Because they're not with the program, not that they're not against Vatican II, but because they're not against the way that Vatican II has been understood, presented, or may, may I say misrepresented for more than a generation. And in my opinion, that's entirely wrongheaded. Restores, you know, I'm. A few weeks ago, our good Holy Father rather hysterically said that restoration was going to kill us all. <laughs> Literally, those exact restoration, we must not have restoration. Restoration is going to kill us all. And the reason I think that that's so absurd, and, and with due respect to the office of the papacy, that's an absurd statement. Simply because all of Christianity the whole of Christianity is a restoration project. Everything that we're going through, what Christ went through, it's about restoring the relationship with God that was broken in the Garden of Eden. And once upon a time, that restoration took concrete form in, in the temporal sphere, in the world itself, and not just you know, in, in, the, in the world outside of the four walls of the church. In 1885, Pope Leo XIII wrote an encyclical, Immortale Dei, 
and in it, he described the high Middle Ages as the apex of human society. He said, and I quote, there was a time when the philosophy of the gospel governed the states. In that epoch, the influence of Christian wisdom and its divine virtue penetrated the laws, institutions, and customs of the people, all the categories and all the relations of civil society. Then the religion instituted by Jesus Christ, solidly established in the degree of dignity due to it, <clears throat> pardon me, flourished everywhere, thanks to the favor of princes and the legitimate protection of the magistrates. Then the priesthood and the empire were united by a happy concord and by the friendly interchange of good offices. So organized, civil society gave fruits superior to all expectations, whose memory subsists and will subsist, registered as it is in innumerable documents that no artifice of the adversaries can destroy or obscure. Unquote. Although that doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't keep them from trying. But I'll tell you that documents are not the only remaining evidence of the influence of the Catholic Church. The fact is that the Middle Ages, or more properly called the Age of Faith, witnessed the abolition of slavery and the liberation of women and unparalleled artistic and technological achievements like Gothic architecture or the invention of the modern book, the musical scale, the mechanical clock not to mention the rise of the hospital and the university and the organized charity. We owe all of these societal innovations and countless others precisely to the influence of the gospel that was communicated to the world by the Catholic Church. Now, I'm a medievalist. You probably know this if you've been listening to the show for many years. I've been actively promoting Christian chivalry, which in my humble opinion is entirely consistent if not identical to the universal call to holiness promoted by Vatican II. I believe it's possible to cultivate moral virtue even in the hostile environment of our modern society and, and, and the progressivism in the church's leadership. And further, I believe that the ideal of Christendom will be re resurrected in the West precisely through the restoration of the Catholic Church. And I, I keep promising this, but someday I, I'd like to devote a whole show to the many Catholic prophecies to that effect. I can never whittle it down to an hour. There are so many. But the fact that, that, that modern secular culture is wallowing in a morass of pornography and adultery and homosexuality and divorce and contraception and abortion and infanticide and euthanasia and addiction and human trafficking is clear proof that you can turn back the clock. That you can turn back the clock on real progress. Because all of those things were epidemic in the pagan Roman Empire. Some of them even affirmed as good by the leading intellectuals of the day. And they were still, you know, they, they were overcome in the West. At least officially into my lifetime. You know, uh, when Rome inevitably fell to the barbarians, it was only the Catholic Church valiantly communicating God's grace to a hostile culture and, and producing an army of saints in the process that ultimately freed the pagan West from these societal scourges and gave birth to what we used to call Christendom. And the big difference between pagan Rome and the modern state is that ancient pagans didn't have 2,000 years of Christian history to answer to. And neither did the church. 
Remember, our Lord himself began his public ministry with the words, repent and believe in the gospel. To repent literally means to turn back. Today, as always, the solution to our society's problems lies first and foremost in individual souls turning back to God and the traditional teachings of his Catholic Church in order that she may restore all things in Christ. You know, that was the motto of Pope St. Pius X, to restore all things in Christ. And and did he make that up? Was he just a, a, re, a reactionary, uh, you know, trying to, to put a halt to the modern world? Actually, that motto comes from the Bible, to restore all things in Christ. That's That's from Jerome's Latin Vulgate, you know, or the translation of the Latin Vulgate of Ephesians 1.10, instaurare omnia in Christo, to restore all things in Christ. This restoration project goes at least back to St. Paul. Now, because of what's been going on in the church for the last 40, 50, 60 years, there are many people who are absolutely convinced that the end of the world is coming. Uh, Larry Chapp said that a lot of conservative Catholics have been quote-unquote red-pilled by um, the current pontificate by his insistence on, you know, the, the hermeneutic of rupture. And, uh, but we do have reason to hope that there will be restoration in spite of the many forces conspiring against it. And that's what we're going to talk about when we come back. Uh, last break, leg of uh, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. There's an awful lot of people in the church, and welcome back, by the way, who agree, by the way, with Pope Francis about uh, Vatican, not Vatican II, again, not the documents, <clears throat> which I don't have a problem with, but with the way that Vatican II has been, you know, represented or, or misrepresented and all the weird stuff that's happened since then. Uh, there's, there are people who are perfectly happy for that, you know, and, and that, that is kind of the, uh, the the mantra of the progressivists I mentioned before, that they don't want to. They don't want to lose the progress they've made. They don't want to turn back the clock. But again, I don't feel like necessarily everything that we've done. I, you know, I don't want to get in a time machine, go back to 1958. That was the that was the circumstances that led to the problems that we have now. No, we have to go forward. But we have to go forward with a good idea of who we are. We need to understand <clears throat> the teachings of the church. Go back to the very beginning, that Jesus Christ said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. That there's no expiration date on the teachings of the church. And that I already mentioned that, that he began his ministry with the words, repent and believe in the gospel. And right before the break, I, I mentioned that there are people, today as always, who are convinced that the end of the world is coming soon. And, you know, God only knows. But But when we study the history of the church, the rather glorious history of the church, it gives us good reason to hope for the restoration not only of the Catholic Church, but of Christian civilization. And I think that we can we can hope that it will be a civilization not only like the High Middle Ages that Pius X talked about, but one that reaches even new heights of justice and holiness. 
And there are people listening right now who are scratching their heads. Maybe it's you saying that that seems impossible. That it'd take a miracle. Well, let me remind you, and this is why we are a people that remember, there are precedents. The establishment of Christendom was a miracle. When the Catholic Church came up from the catacombs, it was a miracle. When the Middle Ages saw this great blossoming of, of a Catholic society, it was a miracle. But you have to understand that the seeds of that society that blossomed forth in the reality of Christendom were nourished by the blood of the martyrs, centuries of them. And yet it happened. It's a fact of history. It's an axiom of physics. If something has happened, then it can happen. But let me ask you, who, who living under the pagan Roman Empire, who living under Nero or Tiberius could ever have dreamt that such a thing as Christendom was possible? You know, the early Christians in the catacombs, a, a good many of them were convinced that the end of the world was coming then. And what about those who, who lived through the fall of the empire and the, and the, the following dark ages when, when the last remnants of, of this great civilization were overrun by pagan barbarians? My ancestors. <clears throat> well, I think we're going to take the first step towards restoring the church when we recognize the fact that the truths of Christian revelation can do more than just organize the Catholic Church or even provide guidance for Christians to reach heaven, although that's their primary purpose. Because when the church had a real influence on culture, the Catholic truth spread beyond the four walls of the church and directly influenced the temporal order. This is what was called for by Vatican II. It's the meaning of the Feast of Christ the King. If you've ever read Apostolicum Axiositatem, that's the Vatican II document, <clears throat> the first time in the history of history that an ecumenical council produced a document entirely on the vocation of the laity. <clears throat> Pardon me, and that's what we are called to do, to sanctify the secular order, to make the world outside the four walls of the church holy. And, and thereby restore the social reign of Christ the King. Pius X said civilization doesn't need to be invented, right? I, I, I digress quickly, but, you know, I came from an entertainment background. I was in the entertainment industry. I worked in, I was in a band. I, you know, I did music. I worked in Hollywood. And... I came from that background, and when I started doing apostolic work, <clears throat> I naturally gravitated towards uh, marketing and advertising because it's, you know, very much a, a large part of the entertainment industry, and it's kind of where my strengths were. And the one word that I couldn't use as a conservative, solid, orthodox Catholic was new. You know, new and improved, that's the crack cocaine of advertising. And so you see that when Vatican II came along, you know, and, and you had you have a string of popes as long as my arm saying far be it from priests, you know, to, to ever embrace anything novel. And the devil is always coming up with some novelty against the truth and, and nothing new, only that which has uh, been received. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 gives us the first written account of the consecration at the Holy Mass. 
that Jesus took into his hands, you know, the bread and blessed it and broke it and said, this is my body. He prefaces those words by saying, I hand on to you what I have received. You understand, in, in one of the first books of the New Testament ever written, the Holy Mass was already a received tradition. And so St. Pius X says of Christendom, civilization doesn't need to be invented, neither the new city to be built in the clouds. It existed. It exists. It is the Christian civilization, the Catholic city. We only need to establish it again and incessantly restore it on its natural and divine foundations to restore all things in Christ. Now, in light of those words from Pope St. Pius X, because heaven forfend, that was 100 years ago, consider the words of Pope St. John Paul II. One of his most overlooked and, in my opinion, most important encyclicals was released in 2001. It was called Novo Millennio Eniunte, as we enter the new millennium. And in that encyclical, uh, John Paul II laid out a seven-point pastoral plan for the whole church. Once again, the first time in the history of history that the Pope, any Pope, had ever uh, produced such a document. A seven-point plan to restore the church. And what did he say? He said, echoing Pius X, it's not, the matter of it's not a matter of inventing a new program. The program already exists. It is a plan found in the gospel and in the living tradition. It is the same as ever. Ultimately, it has its, as its center Christ himself, who is to be known loved and imitated, so that in him we may live the life of the Trinity, and with him transform history until its fulfillment in the heavenly Jerusalem. This is a program that does not change with the shifts of time and cultures. This program for all times is our program for the third millennium. Okay, the program for what? What is John Paul II talking about? He's talking about fulfilling the petition of the Our Father, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. What the medievals called the earthly Jerusalem. What St. Pius X called the Catholic city. What John Paul II called the civilization of love over and against the culture of death is a product that absolutely requires an army of restorers. And the fact that that army, though tiny, is the one part of the church that's actually growing is a cause for great hope. When we look at the history of the church through the lens of what, what I call the medieval mentality, which is to say, when we look at it through Catholic goggles, when we look at it through the perennial teachings of the church, uh, you know, which, which uh, John the Twenty Third told us, or so, um, you know, perfectly expounded in the Council of Trent. When we look at that history through that lens, we have good reason to hope for a restored period 
of a truly Catholic civilization. It might be hard to see right now. It might take a miracle. But if God wills it, and we cooperate, what once was may be again, and not just again, but greater, greater than ever before. The restoration of the relationship between God and man that was broken in the Garden of Eden only begins when we repent, when we literally turn back. Like C.S. Lewis said, we all want progress. But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and going back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back first is the most progressive. For two millennia, Christ and his holy church have been at the vanguard of true progress. Each and every hour of the day, the host and chalice are raised somewhere on the earth. And at every holy mass, Christ turns back the clock all the way to the sacrifice of Calvary. When you go to confession in the sacrament of penance, when, when the priest in persona Christi absolves you of your sins, Christ himself turns back the clock on your sins to restore your baptismal innocence. And I believe, like, like St. John Paul II, that with Christ's help, we can turn back the clock on the madness of, of modernity and restore the sanity that only proceeds from sanctity. That was the true message of Vatican II, and that's no nonsense. Remember this, there's no expiration date on the words of Jesus. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, that's all the time we've got for, for this week. Great to be back with you. Uh, uh, really missed uh, being able to share with you for these last couple of weeks. Um, I'm glad that you tuned in, and uh, I hope that you'll uh, join us next week or whenever it is that you listen to the podcast. We're on all the platforms, uh, video on Rumble if you'd like to watch that way. Lots of stuff going on, too. Visit vmpr.org to find out what's happening uh, at Virgin Most Powerful. We've got some conferences coming up including one in august it's all mary with me and terry barber going to be talking about our lady of good success and our lady of america and our lady of fatima also got a um, information on a pilgrimage with the opus angelorum lots of stuff going on check out vmpr.org and until next time thank you for listening and may god richly bless you and your family <laughs>